This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. What's good, family? your host, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Farm D in the ED. And today we're going to talk about something a little bit more personal than usual. We're going to talk about my personal journey with the COVID vaccine. Particularly, we're talking about me being very skeptical about it about a few months out to going into more of a role where I myself am going to be able to receive the vaccine and agree with it now. But before we get into that, I really want to talk about why I even made this episode Uh and particularly this who I made it for. So this is going to be for Kia. This is going to be for Dana, Eric. This is going to be for Callie and Rob. This is going to be for, you know, Larry, Brenda. This is going to be for all of my family, friends and co-workers that I've been able to work with over the last year and to be able to witness some of the most intimate uh, aspects of the COVID in itself and take care of some of the sickest patients that I've ever seen in my career. And also it's going to be just due to the conversations I've had with different infectious disease professionals and them being able to guide me down my path. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Let's talk about why I wasn't going to get the COVID vaccine. I was very skeptical. As I am with most therapies, a lot of you guys who know me clinically realize that it's going to take a good bit for me to jump on a bandwagon of anything not named ketamine. One of the things I looked at and I didn't research in depth at the time was the fact that I was nervous about the speed of the vaccine and how quickly it's produced. The other part was that I was nervous about the technology that was being used. Also, I was very skeptical whether we really had patient-oriented outcomes when looking at the efficacy of this. I think that the last thing that was really heavy on my mind was the safety of the vaccine. The next step for me was reaching out to those who I trusted, reaching out to my co-resident Michelle, reaching out to my co-resident Elena, reaching out to some ID physicians who I trust and asking them in depth about some of the things I was concerned about. And what a few of them told me to do was just write down all the questions that I had. And with me having access to the medical literature, with me having an understanding of vaccine production and me having understanding of the FDA approval process was to go down and just answer those questions for myself. And at the end of it, if I felt uncomfortable, then I was justified. And if I was not, I did. I had to really readjust some of those thoughts in my head. So one of the first questions that I want to ask myself was who was influencing my thoughts on the COVID vaccine? I can really say that when I wrote these things down, I realized that media and social media had a huge impact on me. And I'm not afraid to, to say that out loud because I realized that some people think that, oh, no one influences me. No one really has a input on how I think about certain things. But when I would look at the media, I would say, hey, if they're promoting something this much, if they're promoting it and we've went down this path over the last six months, I was kind of to the point to where I didn't believe anything that the media was promoting because we went down this path with hydroxychloroquine. We went down this path with Actermo and a few of the other agents and doing press release on data without even having the studies published. The media jumped so hard on those things and was saying, that, oh, we should do this. We should do that. And I realized now that those things and those therapies had crappy data. We jumped on a bandwagon. with it, So I got to the point where I just didn't want to believe it. The next part was the fact that politicians said the entire COVID in itself was so politicized that 
I began to hate everything that was involved with politics. I began to hate the campaigns. I began to hate the whole process of voting. I began to hate the conversations people would have with you because it was the one time that we as America got together and hated on each other for stupid things because you were left, you were right, you was a liberal, and we just really went overboard. Part of me would never forgive how we acted as a country when it comes to politics, and I guess that's just not how I was raised, and if you believe that we should be okay with hating on individuals, we should be digging up dirt, we should be doing everything we can to bash another person or another party, then that's on you. That's just not how I was raised, and that's just not my style. And lastly, just listening to the lay public and individuals who were not very intimate with the data, with the vaccine, I realized that I was starting to say some of the things that they said behind closed I was starting to, you know, have some of the same questions that they had without really taking the effort and the energy to develop myself and develop my thinking on it in a more scientific way. So all of those things really influenced my thoughts on the vaccine initially until I had to step back and remind myself of the type of training that I've received and how how I should think about scientific questions and how to investigate my thoughts and questions on scientific information. So after answering the first question of who was influencing me, I realized I really didn't like the fact that those individuals and those institutions was influencing my thought pattern. And I had to move on to the next question. And the next question for me was, why does it seem like this vaccine is rushed? Like, What's going on with this? And I had to break it down into a few more questions that I'm going to go through and answer and walk you down my path of how I answer those questions. All right. So the first part of answering this question for me was how the hell did the vaccine become developed so quickly? And what I found was that traditional vaccines typically use a weakened version of some type of microbe or pathogen or a piece of the protein and actually grow those in eggs or cells. And developing and manufacturing this particular type of vaccine takes a long time, years in most instances. But by contrasting that, by just using the genetic material that makes the spike glycoprotein, which is the protein on the surface of coronavirus that is essential for infecting human cells, the design and manufacture of this is simplified greatly. We was actually lucky enough to receive the viral DNA sequences from China on January 11, 2020. And once we got that, that was able to speed up a lot of the manufacturing processes and the development of these things. And I think a few months after that, we was able to rev up our production of a vaccine. So what I keep hearing is that the genetic material mRNA is actually easy to make in a lab. So again, Manufacturing this mRNA vaccine rather than a protein vaccine that we were used to can save years. So to make all this make sense to me, what it seems like is the rapid pace of development of vaccines against COVID-19 is enabled by a few things. The fact that we had prior knowledge of this spike protein that is crucial in the infection of human subjects and the fact that neutralizing antibodies against this protein is super important for immunity for us. Also, the fact that the evolution of nucleic acid vaccine technology platforms has allowed us to be able to get this information from the DNA sequencing and be able to drive the production and manufacturing of this at a rapid pace. And then lastly, the development of activities conducted in parallel instead of it being sequentially definitely led to a rapid development of the vaccines. 
So the next part was ask myself, has this really never been done before? Have we really never produced a vaccine in a short period of time? And we actually go back and look at on the CDC website. H1N1 was produced in six months, according to the CDC's website, according to their timeline. Again, don't quote me, quote the CDC. So what I was able to see was that April 21st, the CDC began working on a candidate vaccine. And then on July 22nd, clinical trials began on those vaccines. And then on September 15th, the FDA actually approved four of the 2019 H1N1 influenza vaccines. And then on October 5th, the first dose was given within the U.S. So I think about this and I realized that they took some technology that was already there for a particular vaccine, switched up some of the sequences to target a particular virus and was able to produce this in a rapid pace. Again, different. But since all you people out there swears this is just another flu, this vaccine is just another version of the flu in your mind as well. So I, I can't say that something wasn't done this quickly anymore. So it definitely hit me in a different way. So the next step for me was figuring out where there are steps that were skipped. That we kind of streamline something to make this vaccine become available. And what I found was that all vaccines went through preclinical trials. They went through phase one, phase two, and phase three. And the size of these trials were exactly at the same as you would for any of the old vaccines. I want to look and see whether any preclinical trials, because I keep hearing that this has never been studied before. I saw that Pfizer actually published their preclinical data on September 8th of this year. And I was able to find the preclinical data for some of the other vaccines and the phase one data. And they were testing different doses. It made me feel a little bit more comfortable because the data that we're seeing now that we're hearing about that we'll talk about later on, exactly from the phase three, there was no skipping of the steps. And the biggest risk and the biggest time constraint was the fact that we're able to produce these vaccines at the same time as they're being they're being studied. So the, the companies are taking a huge risk for making a vaccine, knowing that they can get shut down at any point. And there's a lot of money being thrown around. My next question for this subset when it comes to speed, are the usual players involved? The usual people, are they going to benefit from this vaccine financially? Everyone thinks that pharmacists are involved with the drug companies in some kind of way. We're not. Trust me, I don't get paid anymore, any less. But the drug companies did get millions of dollars of assistance to make this vaccine become possible. And it seems that they were able to take their money and produce more as well. So they got extra money to produce this. So they're not going to lose as much on the back end if something goes wrong. So that leads to speed. And I, I get that. All right, guys. So the next part that I went into was like the mRNA vaccine technology in general. Like, what the hell is that? And should I be placing something like that in my body? And is there any other vaccine that's not using that technology? So as far as how does it work, you, we basically have a message that's being sent with, with this vaccine. The message says, hey, make this spike protein. And the body says, OK, cool. I have this little temporary message. I'm deleting the voicemail after that. So I make this viral protein and we go and see that. Oh, crap. This is something that's not normal. The body looks at it, attacks it, produces these T killer cells and then also produce some memory cells for it as well. So the next time they come into that again, we say, OK, now the body has the immunity required to, to fight this this COVID-19 virus. And that made a little bit more sense to me because I wanted to make sure that this was a temporary message that was sent and not something that hung out my body for long after the purpose was served. Also didn't think about the quantity of other technologies being used. 
You have your viral vector replicating its 14 in development there. You have other technology, it's 10 vaccines getting developed there. You have DNA vaccine, there's 12 getting made there. There's 20 RNA vaccines getting made. There's three live attenuated vaccines getting made as well. Uh, there's uh, eight inactive, there's 44 protein based. So there's a variety of vaccines getting made, not just this one or two that we talk about. The next step for me was figuring out, was this vaccine really effective or was it just something that was meant to be a press relief? Was it something that was actually a, an option that we had that was going to provide real and definitive results for America and get us back to our usual? Because I just need a little bit more information than I've had in the past with the previous COVID data. Regarding efficacy, there's a few questions that I had. What outcomes were actually studied? Were the people in those trials similar to America and did those people look like me? Because ultimately, I was looking at this data to see whether I would take the drug or not. Also, I wanted to figure out, would it prevent me from dying, missing out on work, losing money, or spreading this disease to someone who could also have these outcomes as well? So looking at the data, particularly this study that was actually released a few days ago by the Pfizer group and their vaccine led by Dr. Pollack, what they define as efficacy was not only testing positive for COVID-19, but also having some symptoms like fever, new or increasing cough, new or increased shortness of breath, chills, increased muscle pain, loss of taste. So you had to test positive for them using PCR testing and have some symptoms. They also look at severe COVID, which is something I was particularly interested in as well. And they described that as having the previous symptoms that we mentioned before, in addition to having severe systemic illness, like respiratory failure, evidence of shock, significant renal dysfunction. These are when you're when you're having in-organ damage, when something is failing. Also, they mentioned admission to intensive care unit or death. So this was something I was particularly interested in, and I really want to tease out whether this vaccine had any benefit on those outcomes. The next part was going to be about how did these patients look? Did they look like me and did they look like the people who should be receiving this vaccine? And what I found was that there was a total of 37,000 individuals who was in this study and 18,860 of those individuals received the vaccine. The patients look very similar to what I would say um, my upbringing was. So again, 82% of those people were were white, 9.2 were black or African-American, 4.2% uh, of those individuals were Asian, and then 2.4 was multiracial. 27.9 uh, were Hispanic or Latinx. Another cool part of that population was they were larger. They look like people in America. They look like people that I know who we're promoting get this vaccine. About 35% of those people had BMI greater than 30, or what we consider in the medical community to be obese. As far as the side effects, we did see an increase in people with the vaccine that had fever, fatigue, headache, chills, uh, diarrhea, muscle pain, joint pain. That's, it's a deal for me, but I really don't care. I have those with the flu, so it wasn't really a big deal for me to see those, and I didn't see a major difference in this study for severe adverse effects. But it's important for me to realize that these adverse effects were only within 14 weeks after the second dose. And there could be things that come up later on that we're not seeing now. But again, from previous vaccines, we see that the majority of the adverse effects happen within the first few months. 
So moving on to the part that we care about, does this vaccine work? What's the deal with it? So out of the 18,000 people that actually got the vaccine, when looking at seven days after that second dose, so I think it's key to mention that, only eight people actually had symptoms in COVID-19 as compared to 162 cases of COVID-19 in the placebo group, which led the authors to report a 95% vaccine efficacy. So this is pretty dope. This is what I was hoping that I, I would find when I look at this data, but I really wanna dig deeper now into does this prevent the severe aspect of COVID-19. So I had to go to the supplemental component of this article, which is not easily found for those who don't traditionally read data often. And what it showed was that after the second dose of the vaccine, they were reporting that only one person had severe COVID and compared to four people that had the placebo that had severe symptoms. But let's be serious here. There's only a small amount of patients that's in this and I see why they didn't report it. So I'm not going to use this study or use this information to answer that question for me. I'm happy someone looked at it, but it's not super impressive when looking at, you know, a little deeper into the study. So there's been a lot of talk of the other vaccine in Moderna, which is the next one on the horizon that uses similar technology. They're reporting 94% vaccine efficacy. They're also reporting 100% vaccine efficacy against severe symptoms. And they had a few more people in that severe group. They had 30 people that had severe COVID and all of those people were in the placebo group. But again, I don't want to jump on that. I want to see the actual study. I want to see how this thing pans out because it may change once they actually submit this for publication. They also didn't report many severe symptoms at all. They had no serious safety concerns identified to date with their two months uh, post-vaccine follow-up. So again, this is something that's pretty cool. They have a diverse population as well, but I really want to see the actual study from their COVE study, which they're calling it. So I won't speak too much more on that, but it's still helping me answer some of the questions that I had. All right, not to bore you guys, but this last study that I want to look at for me was this Oxford AstraZeneca study, and they had 10,000 people in it. So another large group, another large population, half got the vaccine, half the placebo. They reported something that was very interesting to me. When you receive two standard doses, the efficacy of the vaccine was 62%. But when you got a half dose followed by a full dose, the efficacy for them was shown to be up to 90%. And I thought that was very interesting, but that wasn't the most uh, beneficial part of this study for me and what I was looking to get out of this. They also found that when you had that half dose followed by a full dose, asymptomatic transmission was 59%. That's going to be cool to me because, again, this, we're looking at some things like the flu vaccine and seeing how efficacious that was. Again, this is what we traditionally would see as far as efficacy. So that made a lot of sense to me. This study wasn't perfect by any means necessary, and I'm looking forward to getting more information. But from a safety standpoint, they didn't report significant more serious adverse effects, things that I care about. If my arm hurts, that's that's cool. If I'm tired for a day, that's cool. They didn't report that I grew a third leg or anything like that, even though there's that's some concerns out there. People are concerned about weird things happening, and you never know for certain 100% what's going to happen in the future. And that's the same information that we had with previous vaccines, and we've been able to get to this point. So it's led for me to answer a lot of those questions that I had. So I think right there is a good place to stop. And I want to recap some of the key information that led me to want to get this vaccine now. 
First is the fact that this vaccine wasn't as rushed as I thought it was. Traditional vaccines using different technology take a longer period of time to occur. With using this RNA technology that a good bit of the vaccines use, we're able to speed up things that usually take years into months, especially when we're giving key information like we was able to receive. When companies are financially incentivized and giving a ton of money to make things happen and to be able to do multiple steps simultaneously versus them doing it sequentially, things move a lot quicker. My next question was whether any other vaccine had been produced as quickly, and it seemed as that was the case with H1N1. It didn't appear that any steps were skipped. I was able to find phase one, phase two, and phase three data on most of the more popular vaccines that we're hearing about nowadays. We was also able to talk about the efficacy of this vaccine in reducing the symptoms and contacting COVID, reducing asymptomatic spread and severe symptoms of COVID-19. And there was a good amount of mild symptoms with fatigue and muscle aches and fever. However, that wasn't a huge thing for me. And there was no difference in severe symptoms. As with everything, I'm going to continue to monitor the data and continue to ask questions and ask myself tough questions when it comes to this data. But as of right now, I feel very good about my decision to move forward with the vaccine. All right, guys. So thank you again for listening to another episode of the Farm So Heart podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at farm so underscore hard. You can follow me at farm D and the ED. And like I always say, guys, you don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work in an ED, but everything you do, make sure you farm so hard.